Philip Yancey, one of modern Christendom's most prolific authors and a man whose personal reflections and theological insights on the Christian life have deeply affected today's Christian uh, culture, once noted in, toward the end of Albert Einstein's life, he removed from his wall the portraits that he had there of two scientists, Newton and Maxwell. He replaced those with the portraits of Gandhi and Albert Schweitzer. Einstein explained that it was time to replace the image of success with the image of service. The greatest need of our time, said Brendan Manning, is for the church to become what is, it has seldom been, the body of Christ with its face to the world. Loving others regardless of religion or culture, pouring itself out in the life of service, offering hope to a frightened world and presenting itself as a real alternative to the existing arrangement. What do you think about that? That truly is what we've been commissioned to do, isn't it? That's our calling as Christ followers, as God's sons and daughters, as the church. It follows then that if we are truly to be the body of Christ with its face to the world, I believe that we must also first be believers in God with our hearts toward the truth. As indeed Jesus was. The me first mentality must be crucified. It must be annihilated, personally and corporately. This mindset that says I must have tangible evidence that I will get something out of an endeavor before I'll commit to put anything into it must go. And it's not just individuals who operate that way, but whole churches and whole ministries have also developed self-interest as a motivational focal point. That's why books like Crazy Love come out. That's why movements like the Emergent Church Movement rise up. Jesus, however, pointed to a very different way of this self-interest focal point, his way. He modeled it for us in John 13 when he wrapped himself with a towel and assumed the role of a foot-washing servant to his disciples, and he impelled them to do the same exact thing. In fact, his constant message to them was that fulfillment will never come through self-gratification or self-exaltation. Rather, true joy will be discovered through genuine, faithful, and humble service to God and to others. When we, the church, take this word to heart, it will move us along a radically different road than we've ever dreamed of or expected. It'll lead us to what Henri Nouwen called the path of downward mobility in the midst of an upwardly mobile world. It'll bring us to the full realization that success in God's economy is rooted not in the search for status, but in a heart rather of service. Culturally, as well as economically, this me-first mentality has led us to the precarious edge of internal collapse. We see it in our country. We see substance abuse, addictions, perversions, unwanted pregnancies, random violence, political scandal, and the demise of the family are just some of the numerous symptoms of our obsession with me. This me madness has wormed its way into the church as well. Moral, financial, theological scandals continue to rock the house of God with such proportions that increasingly the church has all but completely lost its influence and impact on communities around them and the society that we live in. And even in the lives of its members. When the church adopts this me mentality, its light becomes dim and it no longer is worth its salt, Jesus said. People become arrogant, actually, prideful, and actually antagonistic toward God. They see no real reason to continue to serve God according to the plan laid out in his word, especially when the godless people of the world seem to have it all so much easier and better. And unfortunately, that kind of reasoning increasingly infects today's Christian culture, like the current worldwide threat of the swine flu. This deadly virus of me 
continues to spread and infect the body of Christ. Theologically, theologically now and historically it has resulted in various mass movements away from the truths of Scripture. A few years ago, quite a few years ago now, but it seems like yesterday to me, the hype of experiencing wild spiritual manifestations was the trend in the church. Remember that? Signs and wonders, holy laughter, all these kinds of things. People by the thousands flocked to these so-called revival meetings in order to get anointed with the new wine of the Spirit. Leaders of these movements began to abandon the foundations of sound biblical doctrine and opted rather to build their ministries, whole entire ministries, on the sands of extra-biblical revelations and subjective experiences. And I remember a few years back when one leader of this movement admitted to giving God Almighty this ultimatum. He said, and I quote, either you come down here and touch me or I'm going to come up there and touch you. Yeah, right. You might go up there for a short time. <laughs> Ain't going to be no touching involved. <laughs> According to his words, he began to shout over and over and over again until he was hoarse, God, I want your power. God, I want your power. Note the operative phrase, I want. Now let me ask you a question. Where is that revival today? Where is it? According to a recent article by J. Lee Grady from Charisma Magazine, quote, the church where this marvelous outpouring occurred is now a burned out shell. The church that hosted hundreds of thousands of visitors has shrunk to a few hundred members and now owes millions of dollars for a building they can't fill. And this man was part of that movement. He says, I am struggling to understand why so many people who were once part of that church now feel hurt and betrayed. But you know what? That kind of teaching and prosperity teaching still abounds today. People want to be healed of their pain. They want to laugh to their heart's content. They want to feel good about themselves. They want to escape their boring Christian life in the everyday world. They want what they want, and they want it now, and they confuse what they want with what God wants. You see, it's always about them, or me, or us. It's that me first mentality. Now, on a different note, these meisms affect the church in other more subtle ways as well. Our relationships can become broken because someone hurt me. We bail out of a church or a ministry because the music or the teaching style or the community doesn't suit me. We no longer want to continue giving our best effort at something in the church because no one appreciates me or there's nothing in it for me. This me-first mindset of the church will ultimately produce the same thing it has in society, self-destruction. God would only allow such a me-orientation to go so far because if I read the scriptures correctly, it says very clearly in the Old Testament, I will not share my glory with another. And the result is a spiritual shakedown and biblical history proves that out. And the prophet Malachi was God's mouthpiece on the subject, again, not only to his generation, but to ours as well. Turn to Malachi 3, if you would, in your Bibles. Malachi chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. Malachi 3, 13 to 15 says, You have said harsh things against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? 
You have said it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper and even those who challenge God escape. Now, the Lord speaks through Malachi here in the first person. God is the only being that can rightfully maintain a me-first attitude, isn't he? Because it is about him. It is about him first. Notice verse 13 again. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. How should we then live? As one man has correctly stated, living differently begins with thinking differently. And the Apostle Paul reiterated the biblical basis for that truth as he contended earnestly with believers in Rome. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, J.B. Phillips puts it this way, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good, it meets all his demands and moves toward the goal of true maturity. Paul says, stop being squeezed into the world's ways. That's essentially what Malachi is implying here as well. By letting God remold our thinking, our minds, it will result in a reordering of our lives and a reorientation of our hearts toward true servanthood. And that's what God was after for the people of Malachi's day, and that's what he's after for us today. It's no wonder that Paul wrote to the Philippians describing Christ's willingness to become a servant with these important words. He said, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. He humbled himself, became a servant, even to the point of death. And God then highly exalted him. See, we must have this Jesus mindset, which was the exact opposite of the me first mindset. And he was the only one that was deserving of the me first mindset. And he didn't even have it. His ultimate act of servanthood, his death on a cross, proved it. True blessing comes not through status, but through service. The nails through his hands and feet ought to drive that point home to us. Like Paul's plea to the Romans, God implored the people of Malachi's day to change their mind and heart. Malachi 3, 7. Just back up a little bit. A few verses. Verse 7 says, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. And then he says, Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. You've probably heard the story of the man searching for his keys under the streetlight. His friend sees him and stops to help, and after some minutes, he asks, exactly where did you drop your keys? In my house, the man answers. In your house? Then why in the world are you looking out here? And the guy says, because the light's better out here. <laughs> you and I will never find what we need if we don't look in the right place, will we? If you're looking for keys, go where you lost them. If you're looking for truth, go to the word of God. How shall we return, the audience of Malachi's day said, by allowing the spirit of God to help us do three things. Number one, we shall return first by allowing God to break through our stubbornness. Verse 13. Again, your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? For the last time in this book of Malachi, he indicts the people with their own words. They were using pretty harsh language with God. In fact, it was actually offensive to him. Your words have been arrogant against me, God says. And the word arrogant means to be obstinate, to be strong. In fact, the word is used to describe the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in Exodus 
chapters 4 through 14 over a dozen different times. The people were hardened in their rebellion and stubbornness. They were continually resisting God in Malachi's day. They had grown tired of serving him in a way that he had prescribed and getting no results. And so what they did was they started complaining. And the attitude was contagious, and it usually is. The unguarded conversations of a few can greatly undermine the morale of the many. Their malicious talk was leveled directly at the Lord, yet they flatly denied it. They said right here in verse 13, what have we said against you? Verse 14, you have said it's vain to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And so now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. The record is right here. God says, you have said, and it's all so relevant, isn't it? Have you ever felt that it wasn't worth your effort to serve Christ? Be honest. Have there been days when you don't even want to think about going to another service, singing another song, giving another offering, or hearing another sermon? Haven't you ever wondered if all the sacrifice and serving in church is worth all the trouble when there seems to be no immediate, tangible return? Especially when your friends that don't know Christ are living completely for themselves and getting all the perks in life. Ever feel that way? It's that age-old question that was raised a while back in chapter 2, verse 17, when we covered that verse. Why do evil men prosper? Why are they blessed? But the people here had made a couple of critical mistakes. First, they assumed that their status with God was a matter of ritual rather than relationship. And the second thing is that they believed that because they followed religious formulas that they were entitled to material rewards. They were entitled. And when it didn't happen, they bailed out. They bailed out. Gracie Allen, a one-time vaudeville actress and the wife of George Burns, wisecracked and slapsticked her way into America's heart back then. She was a comic both on and off the air, famous for her pranks and for her practical jokes. Sometimes people returned in kind, and one day a parcel from a friend arrived, special delivery. Inside wasn't a pair of silk gloves or a ruby-crusted brooch or a jeweled hairpin from Park Avenue. Inside of the package, the special delivery was a baby alligator. <laughs> a baby alligator, this, really? Wiggling, wriggling, and snapping. Still a little small to do much harm, but nevertheless, an alligator. Gracie was heading out the door at that moment when the package arrived, and she was a little flustered about what to do with the little carnivore. So she put it in the bathtub, walked out the door, and totally forgot about it. When she arrived back home, she found a note on the counter. It was from her maid. This is how it read. Dear Mrs. Allen, I quit. I don't work in no house with an alligator. I should have told you this when I started. I just never thought it would come up. <laughs> Maybe you've been thinking about quitting, too. And for pretty much the same cause, because you don't work in no house, no job, no church, no marriage with an alligator. You didn't sign up for that. You're weary to death. You've tried to make every, take every thought captive, to the, make it obedient to Jesus in your work environment that daily bludgeons you, or worse, that seduces you inch by inch into cynicism and gossip and sexual innuendo. You just want to quit. And you may even have problems with the church. And you just want to quit. You don't want to work in no place with an alligator. It's hard to work in a house with an alligator. That's why Peter, the Apostle Peter, 
wrote these words in 2 Peter 1. He says, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith perseverance. Perseverance. These people were resisting God's work in them. Sometimes God uses alligators to do his work in us. They failed to see that God was moving them out of their own self-centeredness and into something different. Servanthood. Even in a house with alligators. Do we fail to see it in our lives? God wants to break through our me-first stubbornness in order to mold us into the kind of people that he can use. And when we stubbornly resist, as Israel certainly did, constantly, we will never become the people God desires us to be. In Laman, a layman looks at the Lord's Prayer. The author talks about watching a potter mold a lump of clay. And on the shelves in his workshop stood all these nice, gleaming goblets, beautiful vases, and exquisite bowls. The potter went to an odorous pit in the floor and grabbed a lump of clay out of it. And the smell was from all the rotting grass, which increased the quality of the material and made it stick better. Potter patted the lump of clay in his hands into a ball and placing it onto the slab of stone with seasoned skill, the potter sat down on his wobbly little wooden stool and already the master potter could envision the work of art that this lump of earth would become. And whirling the wheel gently, the artist caressed the spinning mound. Prior to each touch, he dipped his hands into the two water basins on the side. The clay responded to the pressure applied by his fingers. A beautiful goblet arose from the pile, responding to each pinch, each impression. And suddenly the stone stopped and the potter removed this tiny little piece of grit. And his seasoned fingers detected the unpliable piece of that clay. And the stone began to spin again, allowing him to smooth out the former lodging place of the grit. And suddenly the stone stopped again and he removed another hard object from the goblet's side, leaving a deep mark in the vessel. The particles of grain within the cup resisted his hands and it would not respond to his wishes. Quickly, the potter squashed the form back into a pile of clay and instead of the beautiful goblet that the artist informed in his mind that this piece of clay would be, because of its resistance, he formed a crude finger bowl what might have been a rare and gorgeous goblet, the author says, was now only a peasant's finger bowl. It was certainly second best. This wasn't the craftsman's first or finest intention, rather just an afterthought. And then he says this. He says, when we resist the master potter's hand, we run the very real risk of becoming less than what we would become have had we allowed ourselves and submitted ourselves to his work. This process of brokenness is like stopping the potter's wheel where gritty, grainy, non-compliant attitudes and character traits can be extracted to allow further work on our beauty. But if those pieces remain obstructive, we will surely become a vessel which cannot be used to the extent that he originally intended. When we are broken in the right place, says the author, in the arena of the soul and the will, we experience great peace and productivity. This condition is the prerequisite for maturity, wisdom, and greater fruitfulness. But when we resist the breaking process, we become our own worst enemy. Read Jeremiah 18, verses 1 to 12 this week. It talks about the potter and the clay. But let me quote this verse to you. Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 9 says this. Destruction is certain for those who argue with their creator. Does a clay pot ever argue with its maker? 
Does the clay dispute with the one who shapes it, saying, stop, you are doing it wrong? Does the pot ever exclaim, how clumsy can you be? Friends, if we're ever going to become the people God wants us to be, we must begin by allowing him to break through our stubbornness. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says this, For we are his workmanship, his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He has in mind what he's molding us to be. We will either resist him and become something less or submit ourselves to him and become all that he wants. So, we must continue to allow him to do his work in us and even deeper by the second thing we find in Malachi here is that we need to be allowing God to break down our selfishness. Verse 14. Verse 14 says, You have said it is vain to serve God, and what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? These are the statements here in verse 14 of a self-absorbed group of people. And it comes in the form of questions that I'm going to ask. People like this say things like, why bother? Why bother? You have said it is vain to serve God. With clenched teeth and their fists thrust high in the air, they exclaim, it's useless to serve God. It doesn't make any sense. It's absolutely empty. And that's what the word vain means here. It's an important one in Hebrew. It denotes something that is without substance, completely worthless, either materially or morally. And that's how they viewed service to God. Useless. A waste of time. And their reasoning? The righteous get nothing out of it, and the wicked are not punished. So why bother? And in today's church, it's a very common song, and you hear it all the time. And do you know when it gets the most airplay? When the people of God get their focus off the eternal and onto the immediate. That's when it gets played. Why bother? And then the second question is very much like it. What's in it for me? What's in it for me? Verse 14 says, What profit is it that we have kept his charge? Bill Hybels calls this the familiar thread that unites all of us, an interest we all share, self-interest. It's interesting that this word profit is used most often in the Old Testament to denote greed and unjust gain. They didn't see any immediate personal gratification here, and so in their service to God, and they became completely disillusioned with it. So much so that even life in the world became more attractive to them than life in the Lord. That's a dangerous place to be, isn't it? The attitude Malachi addresses here is, according to one scholar, one which God's servants are particularly prone to when times get hard and are no longer flushed with the enthusiasm they once had at the beginning of their walk with Christ. In other words, it's that feeling that you start to get after the fire of newfound faith starts to die. When the road gets tough, when you come off the mountain and you're trudging through the valley, that's when we begin to say, what's in it for me? That's the dissatisfied cry of a heart that's no longer fixed on God. It hits when the joy of serving in the Lord's work has become a, a nostalgic memory of the past rather than a vibrant reality in the present. And maybe that touches a nerve with some of you today. You might find yourself thinking in, kind, in those kinds of patterns. You have to guard against that. Because if you find yourself there, you desperately need to ask God to change your heart and redirect your vision. Because we don't serve for gain, but for glory, God's glory. And according to Paul, it's the man or the woman of a depraved mind and who is deprived of the truth who views service to God as a means of gain. Read 1 Timothy 6. Again, 
Bill Hybels lends some insight in his book, Descending into Greatness. He writes, today's world celebrates this particular manifestation of depravity. Never before in modern history has the notion of the bloated human had greater acceptance. It is our generation, after all, that has been named the me generation. He makes a good point. Happiness in the world's vocabulary is equated with self-indulgence. Status and image are the tools of choice to measure success. Our decisions sometimes are made through the grid of our appetites. We ask, will this fulfill my needs? Does it satisfy my sexual hunger? Does it quench my thirst for more? Feed my lust for power? Indulge my need to control? The operative word here in all of this is my, 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 my. And the church hasn't escaped. Believe it or not, for a lot of people, decisions about what church they will attend, what teaching they'll subscribe to, whether or not they'll get involved in active service and how dependable and available they will be are rooted in all those same questions. And it all boils down to one thing. What's in it for me? Jesus taught that our responsibility to God should be fulfilled in a spirit of genuine humility and gratitude, completely void of these personal demands and selfish expectations. In Luke chapter 17, Luke 17, verse 7, let me read you some verses. Jesus said, Which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, you may eat and drink? He doesn't thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all things which are commanded of you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. This is the attitude Jesus says people should have when serving Christ. Years ago, Chuck Swindoll wrote that one of the most subtle perils is that every servant of God must endure is the peril of hidden greed. He referred to it as that secret smoldering desire to be rewarded, applauded, and exalted. There's a story in the Old Testament, 2 Kings, in 2 Kings chapter 5, that really highlights this thing. The story of Elisha's healing of Naaman the leper. And it illustrates this intense pull of this subtle sin of wanting gratification and wanting to be recognized. When Naaman tried to repay Elisha for his service, Elisha wisely refused lest Naaman think that he could somehow pay for the grace that was shown to him. In 2 Kings 5, verses 15 and 16, we read these words. When he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, he said, Behold now, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so please take a present from your servant now. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. But Gehazi, Elisha's servant and right-hand man, had a different attitude. And as we go down in this text and we read verse 20 to 27, we find out something here. Let's look at it. Verse 20. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, Behold, my master has spared this name in the Aramean by not receiving from his hands what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. And when Naaman saw one running after him, he came down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? He said, All is well. My master has sent me. Ah, lie number one. Behold, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. Naaman said, Be pleased to take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothes and gave them to two of his servants and they carried them before him. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and deposited them in the house and he sent the men away and they departed. But he went in and stood before his master and Elijah said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? 
And he said, your servant went nowhere. Lie number two. Then he said to him, did not my heart go with you when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Is it a time to receive money and to receive clothes and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper as white as snow. Now, it's not wrong to receive gifts and to be thanked and appreciated for the things that you do. But what's the attitude that you have in your heart? That's the key. And that's what's shown here. Maybe Gehazi felt used and underappreciated, or maybe he was just tired of always giving himself as Elisha's servant with no apparent recognition. Regardless, he took his focus off the Lord for one split second. He lied, he tried to cover it up, and he reaped some incredible lasting consequences. And the people of Malachi's day weren't just covering it up. They were arrogant in their demeanor, not even flinching as they challenged God. They said, why bother? What's in it for me? And thirdly, why should I be miserable? We've walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts, and why? They asked, what good does it do to obey his laws and to sorrow and mourn over our sin? They perform the rituals, they jump through the hoops, and with no internal reality, by the way, and, and not surprisingly, they experienced no blessing, and they arrogantly came to the conclusion that it doesn't pay to be righteous. It does not pay to serve God. It doesn't pay to live your life right. And they had this purely external and selfish concept of religion, just as many people do today. They thought, the thought here is that there's this magical, mechanical connection between religion and prosperity. If I do a certain thing, then God is obligated to respond to me in a certain way. That's the thought. If I serve him with my gifts and I go through the motions of a religious lifestyle, if I say the right words and do the right deeds, he will reward me with material blessings, political clout, and showers of blessings. But let me ask you, is that really the biblical truth? Yes, Jesus says you will be rewarded in this life and in the life to come. But it may not be the way you think. Does God really want people who serve him just for what we can get out of it? Prophet Malachi ultimately points to the fact that what God wants is a relationship, not a ritual observance. He wants our love. He wants our honor. He wants our obedience to issue from a pure and willing heart. He is not a rabbit's foot redeemer. You don't get your wish by rubbing him the right way and chanting three times or whatever. The fact is that these people weren't really doing what they said they were doing. They hadn't kept his charge from the beginning of the book. Now we're almost done with it. You've seen it. From the beginning of the book, they doubted God's love. They dishonored God's name. They despised God's worship. They defected from God's word. They denied God's covenant. They redefined God's will. They devoured God's gifts. And now they were deploring God's service. See that downward spiral. They hadn't kept his charge. And they had not walked in mourning, but they had walked in whining. And there's a difference between mourning over sin and whining about your lot, isn't there? Their sorrow was not to the point of repentance, but their arrogant statements made it clear that they never really truly mourned over their sins and they were not thankful. You may have heard that story of the guy that betrayed, was betrayed by a friend. He went to his friend and asked, how could you do this to me? Who picked you up out of the gutter? Who gave you your first job? Who lent you money and bailed you out of jail when you got caught? And the supposed friend replied, you did. That's all true. But what have you done for me lately? That's what was happening here to these people. When times were good, the people of Israel notoriously forgot the things that God had done for them and began to drift in their spiritual walk. And actually, they often crashed and burned. Let me ask you a question, because I ask myself it all the time. How often... Do I forget? 
what God has done. And instead of counting my blessings, how frequently do I count my trials and my unfulfilled desires and then begin to envy the lives of others? When it comes to gaining a heart for serving Christ, we need to let God break through our stubbornness, need to let him break down our selfishness, and ultimately, through his divine enablement, we need to allow God to help us to break out of our sinfulness. And that's in verse 15. They were calling the arrogant blessed. And they thought that wickedness was okay. People get tired. People break down, become disillusioned. Ministry's hard. Following Christ is rough. Being part of the body of Christ, the family of God, is tougher and more complex than being involved in any other organization or group. Isn't that true? I mean, think about it. I once heard uh, Bill Hybels describe it like this. In a business, you can hire a bright, energetic, young employee and say, hey, here's our vision. Here's your part in it. Here's your salary, your perks, your car, your phone, your fax, your computer, your secretary, your office, and your vacation plan. If you work hard, in five to eight years, we're going to give you, a, make you a partner or we're going to invite you into profit sharing. Down the road, you probably make big money. There'll be more perks, more time off, and when we sell this place in 15 to 20 years, we're all going to walk away transcendently wealthy. Are you interested? Who wouldn't be? Of course you're interested. As church leaders, what do we tell prospective church members? This is what we tell them. You're a depraved, degenerate sinner who's in trouble for all eternity unless you get squared away with God. And that's the good news. We call it the gospel. <laughs> and then we say, we're going to ask you to commit five or six hours a week to service and two or three additional hours for training and discipleship. We're going to ask you to get in a small group where your character flaws are going to get exposed and chiseled at. We're going to ask you to come under the authority of the elders of the church and give a minimum of 10% of your money. Oh yeah, you get no parking place, you get no reserved seats, no vacation, no retirement program. You serve until you die. But trust me in this, God's going to make it all good in eternity. <laughs> this is what we tell people. And I got to tell you, if it wasn't for the power of the Holy Spirit, it would be hopeless. Useless and fruitless. But we know better than that, don't we? Do we not know better than that? 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. Verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, Paul says. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. Verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And that's the issue. When service is offered to God from a heart that truly loves God, it's not bondage, friends. It is freedom. It's not drudgery, but it's intensely joyful and fulfilling. And we will never do what the people of Malachi's day did. They called the arrogant blessed. They got so far off track that they gave up. They made up their minds that if people are characterized by anger, cruelty, ruthlessness, and hearts that are cold and callous to the things of God, if people who do not believe in the word of God, ridicule, who ridicule righteousness and act defiantly in the face of God, putting him to the test, 
without fear, if they can continue getting away with sin unscathed, then what good is it to serve God? They said that, but we will never say that if we have our hearts right with God. This is the line that's being crossed today in the world, in the nation, in this state, and in people's hearts. People begin to believe that it is good to do evil, that sin can be blessed, and they are wrong. Dead wrong. Sin, I'm going to make this statement now. Take it, to, take it home. Take it home. Sin can never be blessed by God. Wickedness is never and will never be rewarded with God's approval. The arrogant will not get off. I want you to read 2 Peter chapter 2 this week. And see what the Lord says. No one escapes. No one. Let me just read you a couple of verses out of 2 Peter 2. Verse 4, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah and the, pre the preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. He's talking about us, by the way. Notice that, an example. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of the unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. That's scary stuff. God will never let sin slide. Not in your life, not in mine. Deliverance is only possible for those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the word says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There is no refuge from him, only in him. Folks, this me first mindset that has gripped the people of Malachi's day and threatens the church must be crucified. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. We need to let the sovereign Father break through our stubbornness and admit that we've been wrong about our attitudes in serving Him. We must let the selfless Son break down our selfishness and help us to redefine what success really is, that the giving of ourselves is reward enough for all that He has accomplished for us. And we must let the Holy Spirit break us out of our sinfulness and teach us to continually disown ourselves most difficult test of our relationship to God. With Christ living out his very life through yours and mine, by his power, we can give ourselves away again and again and again. And we're not going to fear the outcome. We won't even feel slighted when we don't get the same treatment in return. I want to wrap this up with a story. A story that Chuck Swindoll told one time and, and actually included in, in an old, old book that he wrote. It's actually originally printed in a, a book named Dream a New Dream by a man named Dale Galloway. Really illustrates the point. It's about a little boy named Chad. Chad was a shy, quiet, young little guy one day he came home and told his mother he liked to make a valentine for every single one in his class. And her heart sank. She thought, I wish he, he wouldn't do that. 
because he watched the children when they walked home from school and her Chad was always the last one, always way behind them. They laughed and they hung on to each other and talked to each other, but Chad was never included in their little group. And nevertheless, she decided that she would go along with her son, so she purchased the paper and the glue and the crayons and for three whole weeks, night after night, Little Chad painstakingly made 35 Valentines. Valentine's Day finally came, and Chad was beside himself with excitement, and he carefully stacked them all up in a little pile, put them in a bag, and bolted out the door. His mom decided to bake him his favorite cookies and serve them up warm and nice with a cool glass of milk when he came home from school. Because deep in her heart, she just knew that he was going to be disappointed. And maybe this would ease the pain a little bit. And it hurt to think that he wouldn't get many Valentines, maybe none at all. That afternoon, she had the cookies and milk on the table. And when she heard the children outside, she looked out the window. And sure enough, there they came, laughing and jumping around, having the best time. And as always, there was Chad coming up the rear all by himself. And he walked a little faster than usual. And she fully expected him to burst into tears as soon as he got inside. And when he came through the door, his arms were empty, she noticed. And when the door opened, she choked back the tears. Mommy has some warm cookies and milk for you, she said, but he hardly heard her words. He just marched right on by, his face aglow, and all he could say was, not a one, not a one. And her heart began to sink. And then he finished by saying, I didn't forget a one, not a single one. See, that's what it's like when God is in control of a servant's mind. We realize that the greatest joy is to give his love away. Not necessarily to always be getting it, but to give it. Let's go from here and not forget a single one. Because there are plenty of people out there that are just dying to receive the love of Christ. Shall we? Let's pray. Lord, thanks. Thanks that you didn't forget a single one. That you came to this earth and you loved the world. That whoever would believe in you would have everlasting life. You gave of yourself every ounce of yourself for us. May that propel us forward, Lord God, to think as you think, to live as you live for the sake of the kingdom for the sake of those that don't know you and in Jesus precious name I pray amen